This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is an old friend of mine. We actually grew up in the same town in Montana. Her name is Satya Doyle-Biok. But before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Hourglass Cosmetics, who made today's episode possible. Putting on a face full of makeup isn't among my highest priorities, but when I do need to polish up, I try to use makeup that meets a high standard. Hourglass Cosmetics was founded in 2004 as an innovative cosmetic brand committed to being 100% cruelty-free. They operate from a place of integrity to this day. Hourglass also has a handful of clean products, which our team was excited to stock in the Goop shop, including an ultra-precise brow pencil that has gotten some major airtime at the office water cooler. You can find select Hourglass products on Goop or head to their site at hourglasscosmetics.com goop. When there, use code goop for free expedited shipping on your order. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Satya Doyle-Biok is a psychotherapist, contributing author here at Goop, and the founder of Quarter Life Counseling, which is a psychotherapy practice that focuses on the first half of adulthood. Today, we're talking about what it really means to be a millennial in the current social climate. Quarter lifers aren't actually set up for success and often lack the mentorship and support necessary to forge through the ups and downs of figuring out who they are as an adult. We talk about why so many quarter lifers end up moving back in with their parents and why we shouldn't shame them for it. Instead, we need to learn how to empower young adults to trust themselves, embrace life, and even change the world. Satya reminds us how important it is for our culture to support and listen rather than point and judge. There's two goals in quarter life. There's, there's stability or safety, and then there's meaning or purpose. And meaning and purpose are vague and, and extremely specific to the individual and get worked out over time through life experience. Okay, let's get to my chat with Satya Doyle-Biok. Welcome to the Goop Podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. We went to, we were babies together. We were. You were a little bit of an older baby than I was me. an older baby yeah. with your older sister. Yeah. And so Sachi and I went to this hippie alternative school together. It's just how Sussex. I described it to somebody else in the office. That's right. Sussex School. Yep. Where the slogan was Yale or jail. Is that right? Yeah. You've never heard that? <laughs> no. So you guys are definitely Yaleys in your trajectory in the sense uh, that obviously Leela's very accomplished. She's doing very well. Screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And then now you, and you, did you go straight and you became a therapist? 
I did. You know, I mean, probably apropos of this conversation, it wasn't direct, right? Yeah. You know, I, I got a bachelor's in history and loved it, but utterly unapplicable. Yeah, so then, useful. So useful. And then spent, you know, quite a number of years trying to figure out what to do. And I mean, really straight into this conversation, you know, there was very little clarity and I, I had ostensibly all the support in the world and didn't know what I was doing. So I ended up in graduate school, which I was thrilled with, and I've been very happy and building, you know, a career around kind of why there isn't more guidance to, to clarify what you're supposed to do once you've done kindergarten all the way through senior year of college, or maybe end of law school, or maybe end of high school, or wherever you stop mm-hmm. in the school climb, right? There's not a lot of clarity after that, so. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. How, what do you, what do you, and I, I love the idea of giving it a name, the quarter life, and sort of establishing it as this developmental phase rather than making it generational. Right. Yeah. That's, that's huge to me. So, you know, it's funny that we don't have the pattern recognition of always being offended by generations. It's such a, say more because this is just, (laughs) tell me. No, but I feel like when we, I guess I'm Gen X. What are you? Cause I'm, I'm young Gen X. Yeah. I'm, I'm, apparently now an elder millennial is, is you're an elder millennial. Yeah. Right. So, but this idea that every, like the millennials suck. I love the millennials, Gen Y, Right. but this, like we always sort of shit on these generations that are coming up and sort of ascribe them this idea of being, Oh, they think they're exceptional or right. But it's the same conversation. It's exactly the same. And it's, and it's, it's strange when, we're so conscious now of not speaking ill of groups of people. Yeah. You know, in any social setting, most of the social settings I hang out with, there are no groups of people that I can slander or speak ill of without getting all sorts of bad looks or being asked to leave the room. Right. But if I wanted to speak ill of millennials or, you know, I mean, they're really the population now that, that is open to fodder. right? Right. But, but it'll be the same for, for Gen Z, yeah. which I think is terribly unfortunate. So, so that's really it. I mean, for some reason we've, we've allowed negative talk about age groups, but it really is only the 20 somethings, you know, yeah. you, you don't, you don't say like, I can't stand children right. or I can't stand old people without somebody <laughs> like ro- kind of being like, well, that's you, right? you know, but if you say, I don't, I can't stand millennials. It's like, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's nonsense. And that generation is, you know, People talk about them as being entitled, as being impatient, as being without direction. I can't imagine that these weren't attached to all the generations. They're always attached. I mean, Eric Erickson's sort of one of the major developmental psychologists. He was writing in the 50s and 60s. And he has a quote that I think, you know, maybe was out in 1950 or something. And and it's like, you know, all old people talk ill of of the younger generation and think that they're the first generation to have done it, you know, yeah. and how, and he just said it's, and that was 70 years ago or something, you know, totally. so it's, it's a pattern. So in keeping that in mind though, in this idea of like actually just memorializing it as, or, or creating this quarter life container that will always hold whatever generation is to come is part of quarter life, the thrashing around and the unhappiness and the lack of direction and feeling purposeless. Like, is that the gauntlet or do you believe that it doesn't need to be that way? It's a great question. I think it, I think in a sense it does need to be that way, but we need to respect that it needs to be that way and offer some guideposts. Mm -hmm. So really what I'm trying to do in my work is, is clarify what some of the guideposts have been throughout history. And we have to go further back into mythology and, and, you know, other aspects of anthropology to see what were cultures who understood that going from dependency in childhood to independence in adulthood is complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, again, now we're just like, well, what's your problem? I don't understand what your problem is. Like, get a job. You know, right. it's, it's really disrespectful. But there, it's also common sense that it's hard to go from childhood to adulthood. That's difficult. And so the whole first phase of adulthood, which is what I call quarter life, is about re-establishing, it's about establishing who you are as an independent person. Mm-hmm. And that's different than all the rules you learned as a child. And it's, and it's different than, you know, being in your 50s when a lot of this stuff is sorted out. So, so how can we offer some guidance and some tangible help in society as well that is beyond 
a somewhat impractical master's degree or ba- rather bachelor's degree or a somewhat impractical high school education that really only exists to get you to your impractical bachelor's degree. Totally. Or this idea that somehow you're going to get married and be lifted out of this exactly. or right. I don't know what it, it sounds like it was hard for you. It was definitely hard for me. I mean, it's hard. This is what's so bonkers. It's hard for everyone. Yeah. And yet when it's hard for everyone, you know, it's sort of like, well, I had to do it too, kid. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. It's that kind of negative mentorship where just, you know, because older people struggled and freaked out, but they survived. It's like, well, that's just the deal. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think there were certain things there were certainly moments where I was like, this is too hard. I want to get married to someone wealthy who is just going to make obviate all of my problems and yeah. make this much easier. Like I was sort of in a, I want to opt out, yeah, like right. get me out stability. of this. Just, yes. Yeah. Give me stability. Give yeah. me financial security. And I think there's also this, I don't even know, you can articulate this better probably, but I felt like I had a series of jobs and I was like, but this is my career. And there's this weird, I think there's a transition point or many people have many different jobs with no clear career. Right. But like, you can't go from your first job. You can't typically make that transition. So uh, very gracefully. Right. Right. And again, there's no guidance. Right. Right. But a lot but, of what but I... But you're definitely, if you don't, if you're trying to move laterally or shift or enter a different yeah. career track, then you're penalized for it. So there is an expectation that your first job when you're 22 is on some sort of ladder that you're going to climb. Exactly. One other issue that seems, you know, I felt this and I, it's it's only becoming more persistent and it's probably also becoming more of an issue as more companies do uh, like the unlimited vacation policy, which theoretically sounds like a great idea. It never, never works. But I think people are probably taking even less vacation. But when you come out of school, you get a job and you suddenly are expected to manage no breaks. Right. No, no I mean, you get Christmas off, et cetera, the major holidays. But how do you... We were yeah, in a it's, it's another one of these things yeah. that were trained one way for all of coming of age from kindergarten through, let's say, end of college or a little before or after. You have three months off. Yeah. And then it's another one of those things. Boom. Now you're supposedly in the job market. You're in the career world and you have no time to engage in activities that bring you joy or no downtime to contemplate your inner life or very little time to travel and explore the world. This is the reason that that the, the, the term real world, you know, join the real world. I mean, I put that in quotes, but it's basically just synonymous with, with ongoing perpetual stress with no break. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, you're in the real world now, kid, you know, all it's this true. stuff. And it's like all that anyone means by that is suck it up. Life is really hard and it doesn't end until you die. Yeah. And then we're expecting people to want to jump into this game, right? So, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's another one of these complicated things. Yeah. How do you acclimate to really never having yeah. true breaks from, from jobs? And I see it as a mom with young kids and I see it sort of in the waves of intern applications that come to Goop, which is all well and good and those things are great. But I feel like as a child in Montana – summer was like vegetate time. I mean, we were active and doing things, but we didn't go away to camp. We read books and played outside and she went to the river. Yeah, exactly. Went tubing. Yeah. But now I feel like a lot of my friends and, and part of it's childcare, but kids are in camps all summer. They are expected to be working, which is, I had jobs, which is I think great, but and it did feel like a different gear, but there was no, it's becoming even less common, I think, for people to not feel pressured. So, all I mean, even, the time. even as you describe this, it's like, why would we not think that 70% of young people, or I should say college students, that's really where that statistic comes from, I think, have experienced overwhelming anxiety because even as you describe that schedule my anxiety goes up I know I was feeling my shoulders were you feeling it too yeah Yeah. I mean it's just like oh my god you know you're like how am I gonna get a job we are not wired to go that hard that long that consistently 
we're wired to want to stare up at the sky. You know, we're wired to want to watch the trees blow for hours. And again, I mean, there's this all this idea that we're lazy if we're doing that, but those things are fundamentally so good for our mental health. You know, I talk a lot about just simply being mammals. I think mm-hmm. we have, I don't understand when we forgot that we're mammals. Yeah. And that mammals kind of like to doggy pile or we just like to rub shoulders or, you know, swim right next to each other as, as whales and, and just be in nature, that we are wired for these experiences. We're wired for socialization and contact and a lot of time just staring and being and letting things unravel. And, and when we don't give ourselves that space, we, it turns out, have chronic mental illness totally. and suffering. Again, those things, even though they may show up in brain chemistry, they are not rooted in brain chem- chemistry often. Yeah. Something else is going on. And it can feel like something that that needs to be a cultural shift in order to feel empowered to make it an individual shift. Right. Because when you're, as when you feel like your children need to compete, right? Or that yeah. you need to compete in order to survive. Yeah. And everyone else is doing these things, these moments of achievement, it can be yeah. really, really difficult to say, yeah. I'm going to have faith that I can take three yeah, months Yeah, I mean, that's another thing I say to clients a lot is, is to be subversive. <laughs> and I mean it, you know, and, I, and what I mean by that, I mean, it's, you know, sure, we need to shake up society and government. So there's that, but it's less political than it is psychologically political. And it's mm-hmm. saying, look, the culture we are living in is not working. The world we're living in, it's not working. Patriarchy hasn't worked for people. Mm-hmm. Capitalism, in many respects, hasn't worked for people. White supremacy has never worked for people. Mm-hmm. It's not working for nature. And so certainly we need to change all these systems politically. There's no question. But we also have to change them in our own skin. Mm-hmm. And part of that means being subversive to all, every, really questioning every single social message we've ever received. Fundamentally. And so, yeah, there needs to be a culture shift in terms of there being more time and workplaces need to give people more time. But we also need to trust ourselves that if our bodies are incredibly uncomfortable in certain systems, something might be wrong with the system, not the person. Mm. And when that person goes to their doctor and they say something's wrong with me, I'm, I'm consistently uncomfortable in these environments, I would love for doctors to more often be saying things like, you know, something might be wrong with the system. This isn't working for you. And it turns out it's not working for most of my clients. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's true. It's such a, like, you must persist. You must persist. Right. And, and yet everyone is having signals in their bodies that something is wrong. Many, many people. And frankly, the people who aren't having signals in their bodies that something is wrong, you know, they're the problem. Right. <laughs> they're the ones running us into the ground because yeah. they don't have the physiological or emotional signals that something is wrong. What I've been trying to clarify is it seems as though adulthood really has been synonymous with stability for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And and not, again, if you go back into mythology talking about coming of age, you go back into anthropology, you go back into other cultures that handled this differently, it's different. But when you get into really patriarchal systems or, you know, certain economic systems that are handling adulthood as a fixed situation you know it's about you fulfill your gender role you fulfill your gender role and and those roles essentially are stability Mm -hmm. and so you get a job you get married you raise kids and and hopefully I mean the former vision was then there's never divorce and there's never a career that you need to change and really there's never an inner life I mean it's fundamentally like you don't have an inner life Mm -hmm. like your job is to get a career it's to get married it's to have kids and never have an inner life or anything internally that suggests you want more. Mm. And then it turned out, boom, midlife crisis started happening in mm-hmm. extremely high numbers. And that vision of stability until death really stopped holding wide across culture. Yeah. It turns out it was always a lie. I mean, that's really what we're sorting through was always a lie. Like we all have in our lives, we're all looking for meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people want careers. They don't just want jobs. Right. The job helps pay the bills and it helps take care of your children, but it's not necessarily helping you feel alive and creative in the world. Yeah, no, it's true. And but so are you in terms of this sort of quarter life crisis, do you think that it's a reaction to midlife crises and younger people essentially realizing that at this moment in time, they're locking themselves into sort of this servitude towards a fallacy and yeah, that they're yeah. I mean, in, in large part. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like shifting to an earlier time when people in their twenties are like, no, 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 I do, I'm not signing up for that. Is that what's happening? Right. 
Right. So, so I, I argue that the quarter-life crisis really has been happening, again, throughout history. And we're just now noticing it because of the numbers, because yeah. it's, it's happening much more commonly. But in my mind, people who used to have quarter-life crises were the artists, Mm-hmm. or the activists, or queers, or people who just did not fit into the standard middle-class white American dream. Mm-hmm. And so they just weren't really considered adults. They were just outcasts, mm-hmm. right? And now that the numbers, there's there's enough of that sort of social protest happening in people's lives and in people's independent psychological lives saying, I don't think I can adhere to these goals any longer, right? That you, you become physically or emotionally incapable of adhering to those goals of stability, meaningless goals of stability. Yeah. And again, I think that's brilliant. I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank God. I mean, our world is not working very well based on the goals that we had previously established. So thank goodness people are protesting with their own crises, Mm -hmm. right? But that's really how I see it. It's like, hopefully, if you can wake up when you're in your 20s, you you can establish a different life with more meaning. And maybe that actually makes the world better. Yeah. And it seems too, I think that people are starting to sort of question the value of, again, a very patriarchal, old world, white system. It was always pretty exclusive. Totally exclusive. Here is your fancy four-year college degree that's not that relevant, that's sort of a finishing school in some ways. I mean, I know it's more relevant for some. But it really is. I mean, what are we doing? We're not teaching. I mean, I remember in college heading towards graduation – I wanted to work at a Jiffy Lube because mm-hmm. it just was like, I just want to know something practical. Yeah. And I mean, Jiffy Lube was the best thing I could come up with at the moment in terms <laughs> of like, I want like to know how to fix a car. I right. want to know how to put oil in a car. Like, you know, and again, I mean, I, I grew up in a middle class home. I mean, I was, you know, but I wasn't growing up in an extremely elite part of America. You right. know, it was just like, gosh, like. People tried to teach me to cook and sew and fix cars and stuff, but but most of the time I was studying and I was reading and, and frankly I loved it. Yeah. But now what? Yeah. You no, know? totally. I mean, my mom always and again it was a push for safety and security, but she was always like, please become a nurse. Like uh-huh. become a nurse. Right. Like interesting. You can work anywhere. You will always have a job. Hmm. There's always a need. It's practical. It's tactical. You'd probably be good at it. Interesting. But she also, not necessarily for us, but has been for a lot of, for many of my extended family members is like, why is there not more trade school? Like, why do we not value becoming an electrician or a mechanic or these things that are wonderful, practical, honest trades that are different? It's not the same trajectory. Right. I mean, I don't know exactly the history of higher education. I think there's some debates around it. But my understanding of it is that really it was it was born out of educating the, the sons of clergymen in mm. America, you know. And so the roots of higher education really come out of educating young white men of a certain demographic that were going to have servants or support or wives mm-hmm. throughout their entire lives. And so they, you know, it was like studying the Torah, like that that's what they could do with their lives. But then we've sent women into the same system, thank God, on some level, right? And we've sent we've sent many many other demographics through this collegiate system, but then nobody is now learning to cook, nobody is learning to sew, nobody is learning to fix their car. I mean, again, it's like we've we've taken a system that really was meant not so much as a finishing school, but as a extremely elite education. Mm-hmm. And and so now nobody knows that how to... It was never intended to be practical. It was never intended to be practical because, again, people had wives or servants. Yeah. So ironically, I mean, again, it's like it's phenomenal on some level that we have broadened access to education. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. No no qualifiers. It's phenomenal. Right. Thank God. But But in the meanwhile, as we have been shifting gender roles and creating access to education on a more broad scale, we have left huge gaps in things that used to be filled. Yeah. So now nobody is learning these practical skills at all, and and nobody seems to think that we need them. It goes beyond practical skills, too, because we also have created this sort of like one-way system, right, where you go to school and you're fed information. I mean, this isn't true of all teachers, clearly, but our educate it's like you go and you're lectured at and then you write some papers and you're graded and then you go and you're lectured at some right. more and then you're done and that's also disservice because 
I've had to learn. I've learned more, obviously, in the last 20 years than I did in college. But like you, learning doesn't stop with your diploma, and right. you need to be much more actively engaged than the way that we're. It's sort of modeled for us, no, where you like right. sit back and take it all in. Like that's not really how life works. No, it's not how life works at all. And and again, it's not how adulthood works. When when you're supposed to be sorting through every facet of your life on your own, that mm-hmm. that doesn't involve passive ingestion ingestion of information and and respect for authority i mean you know again these are valuable skills on some level but when you really have to think for yourself mm-hmm. they're not and so you're you're absolutely right it's not just practical i mean i've been emphasizing that but the other enormous piece again is what's our inner life what's our relationship to ourselves yeah. what's our relationship to our bodies you know can you tell when you're hungry that seems like that shouldn't be a problem and yet because we've been emphasizing left brain learning, which doesn't read the body mm-hmm. for from kindergarten, essentially through college or again, like law school, people don't know when they're hungry. They can't read their body. They don't know what food makes them feel good. You know, they don't know if their stress levels are toxic or just normal because we seem to think that toxic stress levels are pretty normal. Right. You know, there's a million issues and they don't know how they're feeling often. And do you think that we can... I mean, I, I sort of do, but I, I think in that, I think that there's two, what happens is, you know, you go to elementary school, I'll probably mess this up, grade school, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, we didn't really going care. through this, I'm like, <laughs> We were kindergarten through eighth grade, so yeah. it never mattered to us. I've had that same issue. <laughs> but, okay, so you go, you, you leave eighth grade, yeah. you go to high school, go to college, but that somehow by following this process, then it like spits you out. I think many women felt the same way about you get to your wedding day and it's right. done. Exactly. It's sort of this goal, like you're going to get your diploma the movie and you're ends. set. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just this getting on Willy Wonka's boat right. and it's going to take you right. to these adventures in your life, which also doesn't really happen. But is it that? Is it that in that process, we've given away all of our power to these institutions and this model for growing up and that we we're just, we never take agency. We never under try to figure out what we want. Well, I think that's part of it. I, I mean, I also think that all of the messages are don't, don't take agency. Right. I mean, all of the messages are do essentially what we're telling you to do. Check these boxes that we've prescribed, jump through these hoops that we've laid out. And then the second that you graduate, everything is different. Now mm-hmm. there are no check boxes. There are no hoops. You are fully expected to know who you are and what you want. It's it's a completely false game. No, nobody has set young people up. I mean, again, I think it's a tragedy of mentorship and it's a tragedy of older adulthood that we set people up to fail. We set quarter life we set quarter lifers up to fail, and then we sort of make fun of them and mm-hmm. create clickbait headlines over and over and over again to express all the things that people are doing wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's a setup. Yeah. And is it getting worse? Like what's happening sort of in that ge- in that I millennial think it's getting, generation? I think it's getting worse. I mean, you know, statistics, again, you know, these are off the top of my head, but 68% of people in college now have expressed having overwhelming anxiety at some point. Mm. The second leading cause of death after accidental injury is suicide. Mm. We sort of collectively are making fun of millennials for the use of their iPhones and, I mean, all these nonsense things. Meanwhile, these are people, Gen Z included, more and more are coming up in a time of perpetual unending war, mm-hmm. perpetual social trauma, environmental devastation that is incomprehensible, no mentorship, no wisdom, no guidance, no religion that offers much of value for the inner life anyway. Uh, the demo, like the... the- no clear career tracking, like that that whole... No, exactly. That's been demolished. It's been demolished. Yeah, gender roles, there aren't any anymore, right? So every, I mean, anything that provided structure previously is gone. Meanwhile, the world's pretty bad. Yeah. There's pretty enormous amounts of chaos and devastation and grief happening on a moment-to-moment basis. I mean, I, I 100% on the environment, but I think what we've seen too is that... Like if if you look at Steven Pinker, a lot of things are actually much better, but because of social media and the 24-hour news cycle and our addiction, like our negative bias, sure. that 
the we have this illusion, a false belief that things are catastrophic on every level. I know it kind of feels that like they are, and I'm I know I'm, with I'm not you on that. totally on board with that. The, the conclusions that have been drawn, but but you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's pretty bad. We have major environmental problems. And again, for quarter lifers, I mean, it's for quarter lifers. A huge number are in jail or have been in jail at some point already in their life in America. Yeah. Most of them have been medicated at some point. Yep. Um, because their problems are being medicalized and treated as if they have an epidemic of brain chemical disorders, as if that's something that can be spread. You know, again, there's major questions with how psychiatry and medicine is treating mental health among quarter lifers. And yet there's not a lot of talk about why that might be a huge problem. Mm-hmm. There's epidemic suffering. So, you know, maybe things are getting better, but if the world ends or people kill themselves before they feel oh, that, <laughs> I think psychically things are dramatically worse. So I just think it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't always correlate with the actual data but right. I, I'm with you 100% that yeah. it seems catastrophic every day. It seems catastrophic every day. And yeah. so for anyone, again, who's the whole, I mean, all of the research I've done on, on how people have perceived coming of age historically within psychology, all of it says things like, you have to believe in the future, you have to believe in yourself, and that, that requires some aspect of willful blindness. You just need to believe, you know? It's like, well, what if you really fundamentally can no longer believe in the future being beautiful, or you can mm-hmm. no longer believe in your future being beautiful, or, or you've been traumatized, which the vast majority of quarter-lifers have endured some kind of mm-hmm. physical, emotional abuse, neglect, incarceration, gun violence. I mean, the, the number of things that we need to dodge to get in, mm-hmm. to get to 30 without some either both event trauma or, or emotional trauma is insane. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Sacha Doyle Bayok in just a second. Barely There Makeup is a staple of our beauty editors, Jean Godfrey June and Megan O'Neill. They wrote a story this fall, The Prettiest No Makeup Makeup, in partnership with Hourglass Cosmetics. It outlines six steps to a polished, understated look that requires minimal effort and minimal skill, which is ideal for me. Hourglass Cosmetics makes a few clean products which are featured in the story, like their microsculpting brow pencil, a translucent setting powder, and a clear lip treatment oil for a little bit of a glossy sheen. But what makes Hourglass Cosmetics a notable brand is the stance that they've taken on cruelty-free beauty. In 2004, founder Carissa Jane saw a gap in the beauty market, and she became committed to reinventing luxury cosmetics while seeing eye-to-eye with animals. And because of that, Hourglass works at an interesting intersection of science, beauty, and luxury. Also, for our vegan listeners, aside from being totally cruelty-free, Hourglass is on a mission to make all of their products 100% vegan in 2020. So they are currently in the process of reformulating non-vegan products to exclude animal-derived ingredients, like beeswax and carmine. FYI, if you're looking at the Goop Beauty story, all of those Hourglass products are vegan-approved. And if you head to their site at hourglasscosmetics.com goop and enter code goop, you'll get free expedited shipping on your order. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called InGoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. 
If you're not familiar with InGoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders, and there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically. We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue, who are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is, coincidentally, my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an InGoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, and you can get tickets now at goop.com slash ingoophealth. Back to my chat with Sacha Doyle-Bayak. So what is the antidote? It's <laughs> a great question, Elise. <laughs> I know you have the answer. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a this is a fundamental cultural issue, and it's a worldwide issue. So I don't think there's one antidote, but I think a huge thing that we can do is start treating coming of age as coming of age instead of this sort of gladiatorial ring where older people get to just sit around and point fingers and laugh and mm-hmm. watch young people stumble around and get hurt because it's really tragic. I mean, it's tragic how much pain is going on in this time of life. So a huge antidote is starting to take this seriously. And, and, you know, simply people acting like mentors instead of prescribers or, you know, the mockery mm-hmm. wing, right? So a lot of what I'm trying to do with my book is, is sort of outline, again, some of the wisdom in the past and ways that not just sort of romanticizing the past, but looking at how, for instance, all of the hero's journey stories in mythology really are fundamentally about coming of age, you know? Yeah. And that for some reason, we haven't really made that correlation, that we understand that midlife is a time of tremendous transition, but that we've always known, humans have always known on some level that this is, again, it's a, it's a very difficult transition to go from dependence to independence. Yeah. So we can offer support in that. It's interesting too, because I think that there is, it is important to, in some ways, allow the transition to happen. But I, I agree, like we just tend to pile on. I also feel like as we age, our dependence on this generation and Gen Z is going to be profound. I mean, they have to solve a lot of these. Watch who you talk ill of, right? Exactly. They're going to need to solve these social ills and environmental ills and figure out how to take care of us as we become, this is a downer of a conversation, but as we become (laughs) incapacitated and old and need care. And so it is, it's like, how do we not coddle but we're certainly not coddling. Well, that's just it. I mean, yeah. I think the idea that we're coddling the younger generation is just bonkers. There's no coddling at all. You know, if somebody gets hit by a car, you don't walk up to them and say, you know, stop whining. Right. You know, I'm not going to coddle you. It's like attend to what the injury actually is. And really, that's more how we should be observing. When people are having tremendous psychological suffering because they're up against tremendous difficulties. Yeah. And we should be treating them better. And not just, I mean, I agree 100%, they're going to be taking care of us, Right. But also, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. I think part of it, too, I think there's so, there, we take so much pride in independence, and I think that that's great. But sometimes that, to the detriment of family, there's mm-hmm. such a, sure. like, push them out of the nest, otherwise they'll never leave. Sure. And I think, and there's so much, it seems like friends of mine whose older children have resettled with them because they can't afford to live on their own, that there's shame attached to that, too, which I think is really interesting because it's right. like... Why is that bad? Right. I mean, I, I get that I get that you don't you want your child to be able to stand up and support mm-hmm. him or herself or but we have such a like Right, it's not a single family issue. I mean, again, yeah. there's this is an epidemic. I mean, this is people are are coming back to their families consistently after college because again, they weren't given the skills or the clarity on the career market to, to plan for being able to 
to pay for their own life, mm-hmm. let alone financial training, budgeting, none of that, right? Yeah. So it's really common for people to move back in if they've got parents and they've got a home to, yeah. to move back in and settle in. It seems too like you're talking about sort of two planes, right? Like there's the practical life skills plane of how do you change a flat tire and right. how do you change your oil and... And, and it's interesting because there's so much information on how to do that theoretically on right. the, well, this, this until was, you this live it. Before, yeah. yeah. I'm an you elder t- millennial, right? right. So. <laughs> but even so, I feel yeah. like it's hard to watch a YouTube video and change a tire. Like those are things that right. in some ways you need to, ex- you need to learn through experience, sort of like having a child, like you can take all the swaddling exactly. classes in advance, but you're right. still yeah. learning on the job. So the practical teaching people life skills so that they know how to make something simple. The plane of sort of the spiritual plane of like, what am I, Absolutely. what am I here for? Yeah. And what's my unique gift? And right. No, you've nailed it. I mean, that's really, so, so part of what I say is that there's two goals in quarter life. There's, there's stability or safety, and then there's meaning or purpose mm-hmm. and meaning and purpose are vague and, and extremely specific to the individual and get worked out over time through life experience. And it's not that, you know, midway in high school, you think, oh, I'd like to be a history professor and boom, it works out. And, you know, there's there's not only many practical things that get in the way of that, but then you get there and it turns out you actually don't like this mm-hmm. career or you or you can't stand your coworkers and this isn't gonna work, right? And so it's a, it's finding what you want is super nuanced and difficult and iterative and step-by-step. So I think you can only figure out what you don't want. Right. Little by, right. I mean, that's part of it is it's, you know, it's the very Goldilocks phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you settle into one chair, you, you, and again, it's, it needs to be a visceral physical experience, which is something we dissociate people from in profound ways coming mm-hmm. of age, you know, but how do you sort of, I often wiggle in my chair when I'm working with clients and I'm doing it right now. People can't see this, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, really is like you sort of use your body to think, do I like this? Hmm. You know, you sort of assess, am I enjoying this? Am I not enjoying this? And so I work with people a lot on trying to, on really encouraging them to assess, do you like this? Yeah. Because, and are there people within that career in the org that you identify with and that you like look right. ahead and you're like, that's, cool. Like I want to do something like that. Right. Right. Is there vision? Is there, does your imagination light up? Or are you like, wow, the life of a partner at a law firm seems really Uh shitty. Like what am I signing up for? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You you only know those things when you're experiencing them. And that, again, those aren't really things you understand when, when you're being told, check all these boxes. And it's nonsense, of course, because all of our professors, they know it's nonsense. I mean, everyone's just perpetuating a bunch of things that haven't worked for anyone for a very long time. Everyone gets restless. Everyone feels uncomfortable at times. And I think all of that is information. We've mm-hmm. all found that to be information. You, you learn you're physically uncomfortable. You learn you're emotionally uncomfortable. You learn something's not working. Yeah. And then you maybe get hints of what might work and you start trying that out. Right? Totally. And I think this, this idea that you're only going to have one career, I mean, our fathers are both physicians. Mm-hmm. So they right. were, but your dad is obviously branched out from that. But in this thought leader about death and dying and hospice. It's true. But it's funny because my dad, I think, as much as he loved practicing medicine, I mean, you sign up for that when you're a child. Right. And, and then for him, it was always within the confines of that, finding new ways to stretch. Uh-huh. But I think... Yeah. But that's it. Once you have finished... A, a medical degree and gotten into that world, I mean, it's pretty hard to pivot if that's not interesting to you. And, you know, my, my father, certainly his journey was major quarter life crisis, but, you know, he got to medical school from a sort of tremendous clarity that showed up in his early twenties. And so a lot of, you know, what would it be if we actually made life decisions based on, on revelation that came out of difficulty and struggle versus just checking the boxes. Right. The goal is you don't have to have the midlife crisis then, at least not one that's tremendously disruptive. No, it's true. I think that that's it. It's, and it's also, it all seems to come together for me in being respectful for the experience of a 24 year old and their first or second job and like actually being able to sit with them and say like, what are you experiencing and what are you feeling? And there's value in this. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. What you're experiencing, you know, to me, it comes, it comes around. Ironically, there's, there's a lot of connections with 
feminist or queer theory in the quarter life work that I do, because it really comes back to trusting your inner self mm -hmm. and not deriding it as being nonsense or silly or immature, lies or immature. right? Like, what are you experiencing? That's information. You have a, a different life than anyone else on this planet. And that, that doesn't need to be this navel gazing snowflake nonsense. Those are just other ways of, of knocking people down and, and keeping them from trusting themselves, which is what we need so deeply. It's true. So in your work, like what have been, so you, you're, you sit across from I millennials do. and quarter life yes. crisis and help them yeah. sort of understand what's happening. Like what, what are yeah. the things, like what's happening? Yeah. I mean, so I, I work with millennials and Gen Zers who, you know, I think are getting left out of a lot of these conversations, but, but they really are, they're entering their mid twenties rapidly. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, of course. And so these are people I call quarter lifers, you know, again, just seeing it as a developmental stage, but, and I see people throughout past crisis or before crisis too. I mean, it, it's, it sort of goes beyond just this moment of tumult, but it's, it's a, a lot. I love just the mentorship of supporting people to learn about their own lives and, what enriches them and mm -hmm. and what's hard for them and why they're staying stuck in abusive situations and what those patterns are. So we do all sorts of, you know, psychoanalytic work, going back to childhood, some trauma work. You know, again, I think a lot of this population has just endured toxic levels of stress. Mm. So getting people back into their bodies in a different way. Uh, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's work is yeah. powerful. Gabor Mate, you know, people you've interviewed who I respect enormously. So that work is huge. So, yeah. And I think too, it's just giving them an audience and giving permission to have those. I mean, I remember being depressed in college and I think some of it was sort of seasonal affective disorder and some of it was also relational and like, like all that achieving, catching up with me right, in some way. Huge. But, but yeah, like I was offered a prescription I didn't really take, but I wasn't offered much in the, and it only, it compounds it, right? Because then you're, you feel like such a dipshit. You know, I was like, objectively, I am just a white girl at Yale feeling a little down, like how I don't have any right. See, and there's your clickbait headline. Yeah. You know, so immediately, I mean, that's everything. Like, Yale, you know, white Yale girl, you know, she's on top of the world. What's her problem? Yeah. And, and everyone loves that story. But yeah. the reality is you were depressed and depression is terrible. Yeah. And you didn't know what was going on. I mean, you know, yeah. maybe it was seasonal effectiveness. Maybe it was all sorts of life questions. Maybe it was a bad relationship. I mean, you know, just whatever you just expressed. But this is, if this were a 10-year-old, I mean, hopefully we would sit down and ask what's going on with a 10-year-old. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, I cringe, but even even that, our first mm -hmm. line of defense is medication. Right. I think it is an absolute tragedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a tragedy on the level of the fact that we are also incarcerating more young people than any place on the planet, essentially. It's, it's humiliating. I mean, it should be a national embarrassment that what yeah. we are doing is incarcerating our young people and medicating our young people when they need to sit down with a, a wise elder or, you know, a neighbor or an offered a nice meal and just allowed to sleep and cry and talk whenever they feel like it. Yeah. My understanding is that we are, we are the only, let's call it first world country or developed country terms that I don't care for that is on pretty broad scale, putting young people in jail. Mm -hmm. as a solution, therefore seeing their behavioral issues, not as psychological issues, which again, to me is so fundamentally obvious that it's heartbreaking. What we see instead of seeing traumatized youth or terrified youth or youth who don't have better options, don't have better options. They don't, they've never had a figure, an adult in their life who has seen them or loved them. And so boom, they act out or they get yeah. into trouble. And it's systemic incarceration too, because yeah. when you look at some of those populations, all of the men have been locked up oh, there. So, so it's, it's single moms yeah. raising kids yeah. and who end up in the same. Yeah. Kids who have never seen the ocean, but are a mile away. You know, yeah. it's like, how do we get young people into nature with adults who see them and love them, who aren't constantly struggling with chronic stress 
how do we support people to feel less stressed fundamentally in their lives and more hopeful mm -hmm. instead of seeing every behavior issue as either something that can be medicated away or incarcerated away, mm -hmm. both of which fundamentally on broad scales don't work, certainly not in the long term. No, it's true. I was reading Jennifer Eberhardt's book, Biased, and she was talking about sort of the empathy work that they do with kids yeah. and how powerful it is. And, and also this idea of wise feedback, which particularly for black kids is profoundly impactful, which when they've done studies of taking white kids and black kids and then primarily white teachers, and they'll give feedback on a paper and the feedback will either be, I'm giving you, you know, they'll redline the paper, mark it up. I'm giving you this feedback so you have feedback on your paper or I'm giving you this feedback because I know you can achieve incredibly high standards uh -huh. in your work. Mm -hmm. And with black kids, that wise feedback, I guess that's the official term, like dramatic increases. They would, I think, vast majority of them would take that feedback, rewrite the work and resubmit. I think they were given the option. Sure. Like you can leave the sure, paper but it as was it empowering is. empowering to them. Yeah. Or form. yeah. Exactly. Or you can do another round. Right. I mean that really, that empowerment again is core to my work. And what, like you talk the antidote to this, you know, it's really, how do we empower people mm -hmm. to trust themselves, to want to live, to want to embrace existence, to want to change the world how do we empower people instead of disempowering them and saying, you know, there's something wrong with your brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with your genetics. It's kind of unfixable. Whatever these, it's so disempowering. So. It's, it's so uncomfortable. It's so alienating and isolating. We are so alienated and isolated already. Yeah. It's also saying like, you're too young to matter. Oh, it's horrifying. Or to make an impact. And then you look at people like Malala and right. it's like, I'm right. sorry. Right. It's such You know, nonsense. you look at the kids in, in, in Florida, actually. Well, and that's Gen Z. I mean, again, I really think that we are, I'm, I'm so grateful and looking forward to what happens with Gen Z. I mean, yeah. I think we're looking at another, you know, kind of boomer wave yeah. of activism that uh, can't possibly come soon enough. I agree. Yeah. We need, we need, oh. desperately need it. Yeah. And so again, that empowerment, it's not just self-empowerment then, but it's like, you know, the adults, I mean, consistently they'll say things like the adults, the government, they're not doing anything. Yeah. And you're looking at us and telling us we don't know anything. Please. Right. You don't know anything. You know, you're letting, you're letting guns, uh, machine guns into our schools. You're incarcerating our friends. You're letting our friends get shot on the street by cops. What do you, what do you mean? We don't know anything. Right. We know this is wrong. We can feel it in our bodies. Don't tell us not to listen to those things. Yeah. And I think that through social media, those generations also understand that through transparent sort of holding right. institutions and governments accountable right. through voting with their wallet, that they have a lot more power than people right. would like to presume. Right. So, you know, again, thank God Watch for out. digital nativism. Yeah. You know, you can make fun of it all you want, but man, thank God. Something's, I'm, you know, again, I'm hopeful. I am too. Yeah. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Satya. For more on Satya and her work with Quarter Life Counseling, check out quarterlife.org. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.